Welcome back to Ben and Matt's Marvelous Journey, episode 16. This is our MCU deep dive podcast that can be found at entertherealworld.com and the URL I totally know. Episode 16, we'll be covering Spider-Man Homecoming. I am Matt Waters, the latter half of Ben and Matt. I am joined by the man in the chair, Ben Phillips. Ben, how are you? I'm good. I've got many screens, many, many screens. We did this bit already. It's your fault. Your 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 low-tech setup is destroying this episode. It wasn't even that that screwed it up. Yeah, so originally our Spider-Man episode was going to be off schedule. It was going to be short because Mike Thomas and I covered Spider-Man Homecoming in our three-part podcast, Big Spideas. So I was like, ah, you know, I don't need to say anything again. I'll just let Ben talk. We'll put it out outside of the schedule. And when I was working out the schedule, I was like, okay, if we do that, we start this date. But then as we've approached this, I got more and more excited to watch it again and to apply our little show formula. And, you know, there's more information available, the capacity to rewind and pause so you get quotes right, all that sort of stuff. So I was like, let's make it a full episode. But we can't move the schedule because it's been timed perfectly, except Marvel fucked us on that one never mind though so yeah spider-man homecoming for me this is just joyous if you've listened to me on this or any other podcast you will know i am an obnoxious spider-man fan i will attempt to reel it in a little bit but i make no apologies this is a character that is so near and dear to me i have seen five films that don't get it right i felt like i was screaming into an echo chamber about the raimi trilogy and saying guys no no guys they're not good it's just you were like 12 when they came out so you think they are so for me this was like finally the spider-man film for me i think they completely nail it i think they nail spider-man himself i love every decision they made i think for me this might be stealthily the best cast in a marvel film we'll see what happens with sony and their little spidey verse that will begin with venom and and incorporate tom holland and, and silver and black is coming and all this stuff but for now we have for me a joyous film in spider-man homecoming i know you aren't quite as like through the roof with it as i am but who could be yeah we are at a point now where this is the sixth spider-man movie in 16 years we've had a lot of spider-man we've had three spider-man there's been so many so many cartoons based on this character that it's hard to do something original and i think this movie does do something original in terms of the movies this is the only high school movie we really get like they tried in amazing spider-man and they do a little bit in the first spider-man movie but both of those franchises basically just go the moment after the movie's done it's like right we're out of high school not doing that anymore and it's also just like such a token effort it's like here are your two scenes in high school where everyone is 30 years old and i love the title you know obviously it right away shows their hand in that this is very much a high school story and it also has that double meaning of spider-man is coming back to the mcu so i will have a lot of uh, behind the scenes stuff to go over obviously and they claim it's a coincidence that that word homecoming was one of bucky's trigger words in civil war so released july 7th 2017 still weirds me out we're doing movies this recent the film to come out since guardians of the galaxy volume 2 is wonder woman the surprise hit of the year like no one saw that coming dc writing the ship and then immediately not writing it. That took Thor Ragnarok's slot, which in turn took Black Panther's slot, which pushed Black Panther into early this year. So they literally moved heaven and earth to incorporate Spider-Man into into Phase 3 when he wasn't originally part of it. And they did cancel a movie as well. Did they? Yeah, Inhumans got cancelled. Of course. Well, for the best. It's 133 minutes long, which is shorter than Spider-Man 3 and both amazing Spider-Man films. Budget of $175 million, which is shockingly low. If the rumours are true and Robert Downey Jr. costs a flat 50 
million, then a large portion of this film is going to pay one person. And the cast is huge. Admittedly, a lot of them are very young and you don't have to pay young actors very much. The rumours out there about Daisy Ridley and John Boyega about Star Wars and how little they were making compared to the adults. But still, it, it seems crazy to me given how big the cast is. And while a lot of them are kids, there are also a lot of adult actors. There's a lot of cameos. As a massive amount of visual effects so that this was made on 175 million dollars is a bit crazy to me i wonder if maybe because this is technically financed by sony i wonder if robert downey jr's services were paid for separately by marvel and that isn't factored into the budget but who knows i mean it's one of those one of those things where like cause obviously this is an additional movie as well so like do we actually know how much downey got paid like is that 50 million figure I, like i don't know i mean that is what is out there that every appearance is 50 million plus ticket sales but i don't know if he gets that for this movie because it's financed by sony obviously he like extended his contract with civil war the one feature film and then this one is a is again a separate deal so it's whether or mm. not more if for this he one. did them the solid and you know only asked for 30 million or 20 still an obscene amount we're also in this like weird weird point in the mcu where like i feel all three of the movies that could have come out last year could have hit a billion and the fact that none of them did is also a little weird i i said it with guardians i'll say it with this one 880 million so pretty close second highest for any spider-man film but i am pretty shocked this didn't get a billion and i jokingly said that maybe this and guardians coming out close together cannibalized each other's ticket sales but that could be a possibility i don't know i mean Um, in fact you have wonder woman as well doing mm -hmm. that like 800 number as well like kind of adds on to this and it's weird that like when you were discussing these movies batman v superman hitting the 800 million mark is a massive disappointment whereas i feel guardians this wonder woman and thor ragnarok all getting in the mid 800s is a massive success especially when you look at what previous movies in those franchises did or like the best previous examples in those franchises all hit and like this this is like a huge year for superhero movies but nothing like obviously like we haven't seen anything quite as record-breaking as we have black panther this year the last year was massive but this year's already had one juggernaut there's gonna be at least gonna be a second juggernaut out in a few weeks it's a weirdly different year this year where we're going from massive massive highs to probably the comparative low of Ant-Man Wasp to last year where everything was like at a level. So directed by John Watts uh, who's made such tremendous films, uh, motion pictures as Clown and Cop Car. Cop Car's great. Oh, okay. Well there you go then. Written by Jonathan Goldstein and John Francis Daly who did Horrible Bosses, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs 2. They came up with the premise. A lot of the humour is from them the basic story structure. John Watts and his writing partner Christopher Ford who helped him with the two aforementioned films and also uh, wrote Robot and Frank. When Watts got the director job he came in and the two of them altered the structure of the story. Adjusted it to be more in line with what he had and then they brought in Chris McKenna and Eric Summers who both have history with community which is an ongoing theme with this they wrote for american dad lego batman mckenna did the jokes for winter soldier summers worked on happy endings and drawn together so they came in during filming to make adjustments to the script which is a common practice that it's it's helpful to have someone there making rewrites based on how scenes are actually turning out And Eric Pearson is uncredited, but did some writing on this. He is part of the Marvel Writers Program, and he did uh, Agent Carter and some of the other... Sorry, as in the one-shot version of Agent Carter, and some of the other one-shots. I feel he's basically their kind of trusted, let's marvel it up a notch, like MCU series Bible type person, because he, he does keep cropping up here. So there's a lot of writers involved. Obviously, as we've said, there have been many Spider-Man films, all made by Sony. They had been planning a whole Spider-Verse 
to mirror the the MCU, and they used Amazing Spider-Man 2 to set up Sinister 6, and a third Amazing Spider-Man film was planned to come out in 2016, and a fourth for 2018. They wanted films for Black Cat, they wanted Venom, they even were talking about doing Spider-Man 2099, so they were all in. Andrew Garfield and Mark Webb both seemed a little bit disinterested in doing a lot of these films, and there were the reports that went around that some of the Sony higher-ups did not like Andrew Garfield. I think he stood up for himself quite a lot on set and he sort of didn't want to do some of the promotion and all this. We then got the 2014 email hack of Sony emails which revealed that Sony had approached Sam Raimi to come back and do a new trilogy. It also revealed talks between Marvel and Sony that I believe were instigated by Marvel to to get Spider-Man back into the MCU. Both of these leaked conversations fell through, but after Sony had rejected the Marvel pitch, they changed their tune, allegedly due to pressures from Sony Japan, because they were like, look, these films aren't doing us anything just do the deal with marvel we'll probably make more money out of it so uh, that is what they did sony finance and distribute marvel have creative control although allegedly sony can ultimately say no to anything like they have final say but they have they are trusting in marvel's uh, creative voice for what to do with it and sony get to keep full control of other spider-man characters hence this venom movie coming out at the end of the year with tom hardy that is I can't fathom what it's going to be like. It's like the R-rated Spider-Man-related movie, which may, may or may not feature Tom Holland in some role, and I can't believe that Sony are allowed to do it, to be honest. They can do what they want. Because the other thing about this that scared me that I didn't know, this deal can be cancelled by either side at any time. I would imagine a film that's already actively well into development, i.e. Infinity War, would still come out. But theoretically, one week before they were released of Infinity War, Sony could go, nah, fuck you. Wasn't there the rumour that Sony were going to neg out on it at the end of three movies and like they were just going to do this to build up their corner of corner of a franchise and then i mean if that's what they want to do that's smart because the enthusiasm for a spider-verse bridging off the amazing spider-man films that didn't go down well so you know if they want to piggyback on some of the uh, the mcu popularity and then use that as a backdoor into their own thing more power to them but if we get these good spider-man films in the meantime and we get him in avengers fine is this interesting part where like you can see the building blocks of phase three that like oh the first movie in this is going to introduce black panther and then the second movie is Doctor Strange, and you can see them trying to build up new central characters through. And like Doctor Strange, I feel like was their great big hope because he's the one that got the solo movie first. And then obviously they moved Heaven and Earth to get Spider-Man into the slot they got it into. But I feel like they can't build too much around Spider-Man. Yeah, and I don't think they should either because I mean we've talked about this. While he's obviously going to be in Infinity War, his history as a character is kind of as a solo agent who sometimes helps them out. I wouldn't want him to appear in too much of the rest of the MCU. It's just nice that it can happen. And it's good that Marvel got Black Panther to be as big as it is, because yes. I feel like that's, that's now something they can build something from, whereas yeah. Spider-Man is built on sand, pretty much. And Sony I mean, need them more than they need Sony, I think, is, yes. is why there is an incentive to keep this deal in place for the foreseeable. If Venom comes out and bombs, if Silver and Black doesn't come together, then maybe they don't pull out, but for now, that very well could happen. You um, also see a world in which Bob Holland gets told, oh no, we're leaving the MCU, and he's just like, well, then I'm leaving too, and <laughs> what are they going to do there? Like, the whole reason is to have a Spider-Man that you can parlay off of, and if he goes, well, I've done three movies, and yeah. a Captain America movie, and two Infinity War movies. That's his contract. 
franchise, I believe. It's... What 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 do I need this franchise for now? I've done my Spider-Man role. I don't need to be him for life. It feels weird that they would think about doing that. Although then I guess they could do a Mars Morales movie. <laughs> Indeed. Some talk of that, surely, to come. So... Marvel have merchandising rights. They paid $175 million to get that. That's a steal, in my opinion. They make a small payment for each sequel to this movie to keep that contract, but yeah, they they have all that. Sony also pay Marvel a producer's fee, but Kevin Feige did this movie for freezies, which is nice. He cares about Spider-Man, so he did this for free. All of this, of course, led to the cancellation of Amazing Spider-Man 3, despite Amy Pascal fighting for Andrew Garfield to be kept, because Marvel insisted on going younger. Drew Goddard, who had been working on Sinister Six, was rumoured to write and direct this, but he basically said, I've been completely invested in Sinister Six for a year, I can't get my headspace out of that, and I have no idea for you, I'm sorry. (laughs) So he passed. Kevin Feige made it very clear up front it wasn't going to be an origin movie. They'd had two tellings of this in a decade of this origin story with Uncle Ben getting shot and him getting bit by the spider and all of this. They also stressed it was going to be a high school movie, obviously. They had various young actors in to test to play Spider-Man in Civil War, as I mentioned in that episode, while the studios were still looking for a director. Jonathan Goldstein and John Francis Daly, who would, of course, eventually become the writers, were among the frontrunners to direct. But then on June 23rd, 2015, John Watts and Tom Holland were announced. So John Watts got to read the, the Civil War script. He was present during filming to make sure they were on the same page gave some input about the scenes in Peter's bedroom, that kind of stuff. They were considering early on having Nick Fury be his little guest mentor, his guest from the MCU, before Robert Downey Jr. was announced in April 2016. J.K. Simmons expressed interest in returning. Fingers crossed his DC... EU involvement doesn't stop that from happening because Lawrence Fishburne has crossed over of course seen the light but from what I've heard those talks are dead for now but I think there is heavy fan interest in seeing JK return down the line I want JK as J. Jonah Jameson yeah. even if it's just like a scene where Peter applies a newspaper I mean uh, we saw in the amazing films Peter gets an email from him so like they still have not dared recast and I would say either don't do him or have it be JK to be honest but yeah yeah like it, it, it's weird that like JK Simmons has become a bigger actor since since those movies and so like you've got someone who did it as like a fun little side bit who's gone on to win an Oscar and all these other little tiny roles that he does but he's just become so ubiquitous now that like there's no one that you can imagine replacing him and he's an even bigger name now so having him in there is even bigger draw for people even if it is just fan service really I would say if he wants to do it and the fans overwhelmingly want to do it then i would i would keep it for him this isn't universe breaking stuff either like it's just all right so that's that's your little development so ben why don't you give us i mean the heavily abridged origins of spider-man in the comic etc and maybe talk about our villain for this movie as well so Spider-Man is a character created by Stanley and Steve Ditko, co-creators mm-hmm. of Doctor Strange. Yeah, he debuted in Amazing Fantasy number 15, one of the very, like, most iconic covers of all time. It's, I think, it's like 12 pages worth of story. It does the basis of the entirety of Spider-Man. I mean, there are two movies that are currently that are based on the 15 pages of this comic, pretty much. Boy gets bitten by Spider, tries to earn some money, Uncle gets shot by a thief that he lets go away, and then he confronts him in a, in a warehouse. Basically got the entire crux of Spider-Man's character there if you want a masterclass in how to tell a story quickly and efficiently this issue is incredible it's very 1960s written so like there's a lot going on that's 
in the panel and then it's being the panel is literally just being explained to you in words but like, yeah speech is... bubbles were pretty out of control in the 60s they? <laughs> yes they were I think they literally did this one issue and then they spun him off into his own series Amazing Spider-Man number one came out in 1963 the that issue was Chameleon who has not been adapted into comic books the second issue came out or adapted into movies even. the second issue came out and it featured the Vulture or Adrian Toomes who is the villain we get here this is the first time that a Vulture has appeared in any kind of movie franchise um, there were rumours that what that Spider-Man 4 from Sam Raimi was going to be featuring the Vulture wasn't there John Malkovich John Malkovich is the Vulture yes finally after I mean almost 10 years worth of teasing that they were going to do this we get the Vulture he is an ex-electronics engineer who basically managed to develop a flight suit but he had a falling out with his business partner and yeah basically decided to become a thief to fly around and steal things I mean there's other bits like there's a brief period in the history where he becomes a vampire where he sucks the, the youth out of people and becomes young uh, it's all very dumb but yeah the basic crux of the character of man develops flight suit and then steals things is wow. what you need to know he's not never has been one of like Spider-Man's key villains he's not Green Goblin he's not Venom he's not Doctor yeah. Octopus but in their um, desire to avoid these ones that have been done before I think it's a good one to go for <laughs> and it's one of those ones and I think like to tease where this movie what, what we're going to say about this movie is it's a character that doesn't have a lot of fleshing out it's one of those characters where there have been four different versions of the character in the comic books so there's not a lot there so there's a lot that you can kind of twist around and make it way more interesting when you're adapting it into a film which they do um, which they do so that is very very abridged version of Spider-Man you guys have discussed Spider-Man comic books and big spiders so I'm not going to encroach on that too much this movie doesn't need to adapt Spider-Man's origins we all know he got bitten by a spider. They do one line in this movie about him being bitten by a yeah. spider. We get one line referencing that Aunt May's had a tough year in relation to Uncle Ben, but we don't actually get a name Uncle Ben. We don't actually yeah. get at any point in this movie. With great power comes great responsibility. Like, they are steering clear of the big tropes of yeah. the Spider-Man origin. I have heard some, like, people saying, like, oh, what if they bring back the dead characters in Infinity War and they just cast someone Uncle Ben? And it's just like, no. I don't want like, that to be the reveal of Uncle Ben. Is down in tears to see the uncle and stuff like that. They, they've talked about how they wanted to avoid the tragedy of Spider Man, and obviously, there is some tragedy to be done, but it's been done a lot. And they wanted to harness instead the joy of this character, which has been mostly lacking in those five films. A few minutes here and there where it's fun, but it's a lot of melancholy, it's a lot of brooding, it's a lot of like the pain, the torture, the sacrifice. And they just wanted to just focus in on, he's a kid, he's in high school, he struggles, he has real problems, but he's generally upbeat. And uh, I think all of that, combined with the not wanting to do the origin story again, is all very wise. It's basically like they're doing the Parker Luck where things go badly, but he always looks on the bright side of the bright side of things. He's got a good moral compass instilled in him by these people and even though he's had tragedy in his life, hmm. that moral compass is what makes him want to be a better person and they completely nailed that part of the character in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So our film begins in 2012 in some minor timeline breaking. <laughs> I'm genuinely surprised they didn't change that in the Blu-ray. So yeah, Adrian Toomes is the leader of a little salvage crew, very blue collar. They are cleaning up the mess left behind in the incident slash the Battle of New York, depending on what your source material is in, 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 the, uh, in the MCU. But they, his crew are replaced by damage control and crew are left with kind of fucked basically and they spend the next eight years quietly selling stolen alien tech building a tiny little underground empire so damage control nice little nod to a thing from the comics i think all of this stuff at the beginning it continues their efforts to ground 
what happened in the Avengers make it seem serious. It wasn't just a bombastic third act in a huge summer blockbuster movie. This keeps coming up, it keeps coming up, it keeps coming up, and we keep seeing the seriousness of it that it was a big fucking deal. That and Sokovia, like both of them, they're referenced so much and they're both Avengers movies. So it's it's not just a gimmick that it's a team up, like within the universe it means something. I think doing stuff like this and starting with ground level dudes having to these giant space whales didn't just disappear. Someone had to move them. These buildings had to get repaired. And I think starting here is a is a really nice little touch. Phase three is all about making this universe feel like it's got history. Yep. Beforehand we've had little throwaway references and stuff like that, but like between what this movie does, what Civil War does, like there's a texture to this world. And yes, it does make it a bit more difficult for people to come in. Obviously everyone saw Avengers, but there are probably still people out there that haven't seen Avengers that went to see this movie. And that colouring might be confusing, but I feel like they get away with it. It's just yeah. giant alien it has tech. And they start with the little uh, the drawing that presumably his child did, whose identity will be revealed later. I read it that way, it could have just been a picture just on the floor, but yeah uh, they have that little draw- crew drawing of the Avengers and then you look at the wreckage, so you could probably just piece that together. So we have Michael Keaton as the Vulture, who is never actually called that in the film. Well, I think someone says something about the Vulture guy, but yeah, uh, he generally goes by Adrian Toomes. He initially dropped out due to having to make the founder but the production on that film changed, so he signed right up. Mark Hamill wanted in during the time when uh, he was out. I'm glad that he got back in. Gary Oldman was considered, again, they really are desperate to put that man in an MCU film. (laughs) I do love Michael Keaton's history of comic book movies, going from Batman to playing a character called Birdman to (laughs) The Vulture. It's a great little career trajectory. Oh God, Michael Keaton's so good. He is. I I love this blue-collar vibe for him. He's not a scientist that got wronged. He's not a tech guy. He's not a soldier. He's not a Nazi. He's just a dude. He's just an everyman. And that beat uh, runs straight through this movie, straight through this character. And it's an example of why the excuse of, well, we have to give more screen time to the hero and stuff, we didn't have time to develop the character, doesn't fly. Because this dude isn't in this film any more than a lot of the bad villains. But he is an infinitely better character. And you get it from the word go right until... Well, it's because it's because you get that bit where, like, most of these movies do open up with the first scene of them. But the first scene in so many of these movies is the villain being villainous. Think back to Captain America, it's Red Skull being a literal Nazi and murdering someone. <laughs> and you think back to Guardians of the Galaxy and it's... Ronan like, murdering Ronan. someone. And then you get this movie, which is man trying to make a living gets told that he can't make a living how he wants to so he takes an opportune moment to like do something and like the scenes are the same length but instead of it being this is what our villain does and this is why he's villainous this is this is how this character exists and this is why he turns to a life of crime that you are sympathetic for he's getting fucked by the government he's getting fucked by tony stark and he, he will have his speech later on about like the big man screwing us over and everything and it's he he talks about you know i i've spent all this money like i've hired this crew what are they gonna do and, he, and you're with him when he punches that guy from damage control in the face you can see how why they did what they did i I just love it like generally throughout this he never really makes a serious attempt to injure a a person he you know when peter gets in his way he goes for him and he makes no bones i will be fine with killing you but he's not just going out there attacking randoms i like that when you know a member of his crew talks about being the shocker he's like what is this pro wrestling like he's not into the whole villainy aspect he's not trying to draw attention from the avengers like this operation is run very small he gets really angry at the shocker for drawing some attention to himself he keeps refusing this big job that he eventually reluctantly takes generally he's just he's more vicious than he is evil i like the way they handle him generally like whenever he is 
on screen with his glider and everything. There's just a sort of brutal physicality to him. Like, it's dangerous. And sort of, like, you, you fear for Peter, who is this, this young kid, and fighting this, this guy that is, is shockingly violent, I think, at times. When this first shocker gives him the dressing down or whatever, he kills him by accident. Like, he tries to use a completely different gun on him and it instead vaporizes him. But then he's okay with it. So it's, like, the right level of evil. It's a decent comedic beat. Like, it shows you that it goes dark. Like, his question afterwards isn't, oh god, I didn't mean to kill him. It's, oh, that wasn't the weapon that I meant to pick up. It's not that like, oh god, that. but it's also not like, Mwah. Exactly. Yeah. In a movie with an enormous cast, we're not going to have time to stop off every time these characters have huge moments, but his little crew, he has Michael Chernus as the Tinkerer, Logan Marshall Green as Shocker 1, and Bokeem Woodbine as Shocker 2, because obviously Logan Marshall Green super dies, and uh, Bokeem <laughs> Woodbine picks up the gauntlet. I like the subtle touch with the insulation sleeve for this, like, Shocker Gauntlet that gives the little nod to the comic look for the character. I think they're both good fits for it. I'm glad that, you know, we're going to persevere for Bokeem Woodbine, who is, of course, excellent in Fargo. But Logan Marshall Green is a... It's a good casting for a dirtbag, you know? <laughs> yeah, like, it, like, I think all of all of the little villainous roles in this movie are so well cast, and yes. it's crazy that you think on all these other Spider-Man movies, and they always kind of went for... I mean, maybe less so the Raimi trilogy, but, like, definitely the Amazing series. They went for relatively big names for all the villains, whereas this movie, like, you get these four characters here, Mucky's the only, like, big name out of all of them, and then, like, all the other kind of, like, little set-piece roles. They're all, like, television-level actors who are mm. coming in and just doing good work because that's exactly who you want to be casting for this kind of thing, and it means they're going to be available if they ever want to do a Sinister Six movie because they're not going to have as much going on in their schedules, and we just get four or five like key spider-man villains done in this movie straight yeah. away and they're all people who i want to see more of which is like the best thing about it is this is the first time it feels like we've got a rogues gallery that's the thing spider like, batman has the rogues gallery but for a lot of people number two is spider-man batman has a top level that you just can't mess with whereas spider-man has depth I and mean, they're all characters that have interacted with lots and lots of other characters so some of them feel less like they're indebted to spider-man yeah I think a lot of the characters that we're seeing in films, they have like one iconic villain, maybe, and then it's really thin after that, whereas Spider-Man has that depth to go to. And I also, you know, talk about how many of them are in this film. I generally think of Spider-Man fighting many villains at once, as opposed to just hero versus villain, this is our whole story, and maybe you'll get one secondary villain and maybe a tertiary, but this has like six different villains in it, which is, which is nice, I think. It goes well with the character. Right, so, you know, we move from this little scene to a home movie that Peter Parker has edited together from his experiences in Germany for Civil War. After that, he, he returns to high school. He, he frequently texts Happy Hogan about when his next mission is going to be for Tony Stark while uh, going out on patrol as Spider-Man in the local neighbourhood. One night, he, he stops a bank robbery that uses some alien tech. Okay, so this is there's going to be a lot to discuss between this and the next plot point, so strap in. So Robert Downey Jr. is here as Tony Stark. Tom Holland was surprised they got him because he was like, oh, that'd be great. And then, like, two days later, they're like, yeah, we asked him, he said yes. I was like, oh, good. I love how innocent Tom Holland is in this situation. Right? Yes. He's, just like, he's just happy to be there. <laughs> yep. Both the character and the actor. John Francis Daly talks about writing Robert Downey Jr. here as kind of Ethan Hawke's character in Boyhood, the father there. I don't know how apt that is, but yeah, he, he's playing this sort of 
semi-reluctant mentor as as the the ongoing maturity of Tony Stark in the MCU. This is our latest chapter, and it will go through ups and downs. The best stuff with him is coming later, but I do like this little initial scene in the back of the car where like Tom Holland is totally holding his own while having to have this scene with Robert Downey Jr. And of course, the big scene they did in the trailer was off for this section is when he he leans over to open the door and uh, Peter thinks he's going for a hug, and it's like nope. Bye bye. Bye now. Keep the suit. Okay, I am intrigued. Based on the timeline of Civil War, where do you think this this scene takes place? Is this in between the fight at the airport and then Tony having the change of heart and going to the raft? Yes, I think it is. You think it's then? You don't. So you think it's? I mean, maybe he went fight with Captain America. I think he goes for the weekend, doesn't he? Like Peter's involvement in that Civil War scene is is literally for the weekend. Although Tony he... had a black eye coming out of that, which is absent. So yeah, that I mean that's that's what I'm asking is like how soon after this is this because if it's immediately afterwards Tony's very very chipper for what's just happened to him you know, at the end of Civil War I don't know maybe maybe Peter, after his little scene of Civil War goes back to the hotel for a while and then Tony eventually brings him home maybe a week later I don't know Maybe it was the summer, so he didn't have school. I don't know. But yeah, from that beginning scene throughout, the sort of timelines meshing up don't quite work, and we get some stuff discarded that was established in Civil War. Star Wars thing in particular, where he doesn't really know about it that much, and then he's building a Lego Death Star with Ned. So, you know... (laughs) There's some stuff here. There's definitely some stuff. John Favreau is back as Happy Hogan for the first time in forever. Nice to see him come back. I like his little role here as the as the babysitter, the one that is ignoring all of Peter's calls and texts. He has to do something in between directing live-action movies and Disney cartoons. <laughs> Pays the bills. It's nice that we get this duo back. But Tom Holland is Peter Parker. He really called his shot on this because in 2013 he was interviewed about superheroes and he said, as a joke, in the reboot of the reboot, I would like to play Spider-Man after Andrew Garfield and here he goddamn is. He attended a real high school in the Bronx after jokingly telling Marvel he should do that. And then Marvel are like, okay, we've called your bluff. You you start Monday. Nobody at this school believed that he was Spider-Man, so he felt he passed that test. He posted a lot of videos of himself doing flips. He obviously has the big gymnastic background. All of this really helped many, including me, accept him in this casting. And I think he hits the ground running. Like, he is just so good immediately. Like, we saw in Civil War how he is, and it's it's better here because he also gets to do the drama throughout. And just, it's just a really good, authentic human being a, a, a performance as, a, as an authentic human like you know it's his first time on a plane he is wowed by how big his room is it's not toby Maguire doing his sort of like attempt to have a not quite broken voice it's not andrew garfield being a melodramatic hipster emo teen he's just a, an excited kid but without being annoying you know all the stuff with him going out into the neighborhood and his relationship with like you know the local deli owner and and his sort of shitty patrol where it's like do a flip and he thwarts what he thinks is a car robbery and it's not and everyone's shouting at him i think all of that is just tremendous this is a part of parker's career that we've never properly seen before we basically go from in all the other movies like he learns how to do it and then he's swinging through manhattan and is taking on people there whereas this is he's in queens he's 
doing everything in Queens and it's just not the same level of crime as he gets. Like, he's not doing bank robberies all the time. He's doing little community helping things. He's helping old ladies cross the street. Yeah. I'm just thinking of like Spider-Man 1 where he does the whole learning how to swing and then next year with Spider-Man, he's in New York that we know rather than... They made a deliberate effort to avoid all the skyscraper swinging because we've seen it so much. I think he's good in the school as well. He's not like uber nerd that's getting beatdowns regularly because I think a subtle part of this is that this is meant to be like in a, a science-focused school, like a, a one you have to get into rather than just a random high school. So everyone is a little bit cleverer. Uh, that's why we have this updated Flash Thompson. Love this updated Flash yes, Thompson. Yes, Tom Revolori as Flash Thompson. So he's updated from his traditional like jock bully to a kind of rich social media bully kind of thing. And Tom Holland reports his brief time undercover at that high school confirmed this is an accurate portrayal. Actually, I think even he made the suggestion based on his experience. Revelory received death threats after being cast because he's not white, because people are the absolute worst. But I really love it. I I know there is a, a portion of people that are resistant to all the changes they make in this film. Aunt May not being 80 million years old. Flash not being white and not being a jock. There's lots of stuff that happens here that is very uncharted territory. I think these people need to just... We've, we've had all of this. Let's try something a bit different that is still true to the spirit and everything. And I think this updated Flash Thompson works really, really well. Yeah, like we've had two movies of the same Flash Thompson, and like, none of them are particularly interesting. They're just there as like the bully. And I'm not saying that the Flash Thompson in this movie is all, isn't also a bully, but it's a very different kind of bully. It's, it's a more, more modern, realistic take on, on bullying. Or, a, yeah, or, or an, un, an underrepresented sector of bullying. Yeah, this isn't, I'm going to punch you in the face because I dislike you. This is, he's just a smug rich kid. Yeah, he just thinks he's better than him. And like, he's not completely ostracised and everything, or anything like that. Like, he is part of the general friendship group, and he's part of the academic decathlon team, because he's clever, because everyone at this school is clever. And he's annoyed that Peter is just that little bit cleverer than him. And, you know, he uh, Peter gets the answer that he gets wrong. It works really well. He gets some funny little moments, and obviously he's a great actor that has a bright future, so I'm... I'm very happy with him. I don't see him eventually becoming Agent Venom, but you know, <laughs> who knows? He's have to bulk out a bit for that. A little bit, a little bit. Jacob Batalon, Batalon as Ned is a name taken from the comics, loosely based on uh, one of Miles Morales' friends. This is his first movie, which is, you know, good for him. He's a lot of fun. He at times threatens to be a little bit annoying or a bit too much, but I think, you know, for a guy doing his first movie and tr- finding his feet, his questions when he discovers Peter's secret, and the way he discovers Peter's secret, with Peter comes home from his patrol and he's just delicately, gently getting in the window and quietly sneaking around so Aunt May doesn't hear, and he closes the door and lets himself down from the ceiling, and then the camera pans over and Ned drops this Lego Death Star in shock. Immediately have someone who knows his secret secret and not to pin the whole movie on the secret identity because I think a lot of prominent comic book movie people and comic book writers as well have said that maybe the idea of the secret identity is a little bit played out in terms of its all importance. Obviously you don't want everyone knowing that he is Peter Parker like they do with Iron Man but I think you need to have characters around him that know who he is and it makes for a pretty fun dynamic and it gives him someone to talk to and it gives us a a gateway into the way his powers work we have had lots of spider-man movies now that do have the secret identity is like played up an awful lot and now we're coming into a franchise which they recognize that peter parker spider-man is should be a secret because that is a core tenant of the character but they also recognize that 
as you said, like they do need people that around him that know because there's an inherent drama to that. Yeah, and it makes for fun stuff with some people do know, some people don't know, and the threat that the friend might accidentally reveal it and stuff like that. And he does say, I'm not good at keeping secrets, and he, you know, all that stuff. We have Zendaya as Michelle. For me, the breakout character of this movie and a strong contender for best performance. I mean, she gets the single word name Zendaya. I gather she has done a lot of work for the Disney Channel, and she has since been in The Greatest Showman, and while I didn't know much about her, I, I can recognise this as a dramatic about-face on what she's known for. She's basically Ali Shiri in The Breakfast Club here. She absolutely crushed the audition, they cast her in the room. I, I just love her sort of standoffishness. It's nice to see this kind of realistic character on the big screen she's not like the weird girl like she's not ostracized in any way she's just a bit different you know like she's got a like aloofness to her and a different energy and zendaya talks about you know everyone's a little bit weird so it was nice to play someone who's a little bit weird and uh they will ultimately do a tease call me mj when she was first cast in this film in an unnamed role the rumors started going around that she was playing a non-white mary jane and i remember all the you know michael b jordan the human torch you know anytime this sort of stuff happens you get all these horrible racist comments online because again people are the worst and don't deserve good things but she's fucking great yeah we've had gwen stacy and for the two movies now and that is a dynamic that is probably less famous than the mary jane dynamic the MJ dynamic is something that we've gone away from, but it's also something that they didn't really properly do with Kirsten Dunst in the original trilogy. Because they don't even position her as a love interest in this movie. Just a girl who is there. She even comments on it. She's like, I'm not obsessed with her, I'm just observant and stuff like that. And at the end when she's like, you know, where are you going? I'm just kidding, I don't care. She is higher build than the quote-unquote love interest of this movie. Yeah. Like, she is on the poster and whatnot. you got Laura Harrier as Liz, and, like, she is the love interest. Like, she has yeah. so much more to do in this movie than, than Zendaya does, but Zendaya gets the, the massive credit because she's coming up with the Disney movie, and it's just one of those It's one of those interesting things that, obviously, she's only going to be a love interest for the one movie. I can't see her coming back to the second one. Yeah. But, yeah, like, Zendaya's role in this is she's great in everything she does mm. but i've got no idea what to pin down that character as like i've got mm. no idea what her dynamic she's is just in she's just chaotic good she's just there to just throw the energy off get some scene yeah, moving I mean, in a I, different I, way I, and... I, I love her i love her i love her performance but it's just like i get what ned's supposed to do i get what flash is supposed to do i get what liz is supposed to do mm. i even get like the little lines you get from the other people in the in the academic decathlon and then, and then zendaya as mj is just she's in there as a flavoring to flesh it out as a high school sh- high school movie i think they're 100 percent gonna go down the romance avenue in a future edition because while she makes all these comments about not caring she does also give him a couple of lingering looks and I think they've got great chemistry as well. So It's nice to see a love interest get introduced and not actually have to be the love interest straight away. Yeah. It'll be nice to see this be an organic growth. So, yeah, we've got our little core group of the young'uns. I assume Liz is, is out of here, but I, I love this little group. I think they are 100% the backbone, the strength of this and why I think going forward it's going to be good. There's a clear John Hughes influence that the writers talk about. They all became very good friends. They were forced, quote-unquote, to go hang out together for like a few days before filming started. They were sat down with several John Hughes movies and an unlimited pizza budget in Tom Holland's house, and they just became good friends. We also have Marissa Tomei as, as Mae Parker. She was used as, when they were pitching what they wanted their take on this character to be, they said, like Marissa Tomei. 
and then they got her. So that worked out well. Fuck everybody who wants her to be 80 years old. Why is an 80-year-old woman the aunt of a 15-year-old child? Unless we're missing out the word great in there, that's not accurate. Of course, the classic dynamic of this little old lady that, like, she finds out that Peter's getting himself into danger is going to have a heart attack. Of course, there are some classic memories with this, but if we're going to do this modern take with a modern Flash Thompson and authentic representation of queens and all of that stuff, which we don't have time to focus on, but I also do like the way they depict queens, then we need to update May Parker, and I know some people are a little bit weirded out that we have a hot chick as his, uh, a hot chick, wow, that's really gross terminology. I'm not, I'm not so, I'm not so weirded out by the fact that they've made her attractive, because god damn it, Marissa Tomei is attractive. What I am disturbed by is the fact that they keep on making comments on it. Everybody wants to fuck May Parker, yes. <laughs> the deli owner, the waiter in the Thai place, Tony Stark, I think Ned even, like, gives her a lingering look. And Peter just sort of has that annoyed smile all the time when it keeps happening. <laughs> I like their dynamic. Regardless of anything about whether it's weird that she's younger or anything like that, I like that they went for this sort of older sister type, like that they're friends as much as they're relatives, and that she, you know, get helping him get ready for the dance and, and helping him learn to tie a tie and helping him learn to dance. And she drives him to a party and says, have fun, not like, you have to be back by this time and don't go there and don't do this. But we still see that she cares about him and she's worried when he's missing, but I like that it's this sort of modern take on like single parenthood type thing. And I, I do really like that. She is great. Again, I just wish she had more to do. Yeah, I assume she will. Like, I think they talked about how they wanted to be a kind of community activist type character. So she's got like roots in the neighborhood. So hopefully we get more. And we certainly will, based on how this movie ends. Uh, yes, we... they position Tony Stark as the, the parental figure of this movie, which yeah. I do think works because it's nice to have someone who we actually know. But I feel it does give May a short shrift in her actually, like, in that classic comic book way where, like, he'll go talk to Aunt May and then find a lesson through her <laughs> stories that he can, like, parlay into what he's doing with Spider Man. I feel like we're missing that kind of element instead we just get her passively in the background because tony stark is going to give him actual superheroic advice which he's going to chop and change and do what he wants with back to the plot of the movie peter and ned <laughs> jesus christ i know i'm sorry but i i see no way we couldn't talk about all of that because all that is so important i think so they go to liz's party with the foolish notion of proving that peter knows spider-man instead he notices vulture's crew goes off after them connects the dots that they are selling this alien tech that he encountered in the bank robbery and after ignoring a lecture from Tony Stark he tracks them to Washington DC so he goes with his academic decathlon team who are coincidentally competing there. So as I said you know we've got suburbs not skyscrapers in this scene. Funny stuff with like he gets to the golf course and it's like fuck. I don't want to like linger on this part of the movie too long like we can talk about Donald Glover in a bit and we've talked about the villains already so we can probably move on after this but the general thing of incorporating all this tech from previous movies I think it works really well because one it grounds what's happened and it fleshes it out and it makes it all feel real but it also allows them to be very comic booky in this film in a way that it's not that the Raimi and the Webb ones weren't comic booky it's just they were kind of trying to be a, a serious explanation for everything and a sort of grounded comic book this is like quite bombastical like we've got tech that lets you move through walls and, and special like <laughs> like alien guns and all that so it, it achieves both it lets it be more fantastical and more realistic at the same time so I really like that they went with this and it kind of it's a quick way to bring him into the MCU as well like to, to make it authentic like they keep getting to use all this uh, terminology 
terminology and have these little appearances. Yeah, it's, and it's also nice that like none of them really understand how it works. Like, <laughs> They're just fucking just, around it's with just, it. Just one, guy, one guy has figured out that he can do three, four different things with the tech that he's gotten. That's what I got the implication of, is they just make the same like three or four weapons for everyone. It's like yeah. the, the matter phaser, the anti-gravity gun, blah, blah, blah. And so... Like other things are being developed, but he's just getting a couple of uses out of all these things. And so, even though you learn what weapons will do, and they kind of like limit themselves to just that little corner of things. Yeah. So Peter hacks his suit while he's in Washington, and he removes the training wheels protocol. And then, with the assistance of his new onboard AI Karen, he goes after the Vulture's crew. He stops them from stealing one of Damage Control's trucks, but he gets knocked out inside said truck, ends up spending the night in the Damage Control facility, misses the competition, barely makes it back in time to save them from an accident that has occurred within the Washington Monument. Uh, So we have Jennifer Connelly here as Karen the AI. While it is incredibly cute that she is married to Paul Bettany, aka Vision, aka Jarvis, so we have the husband and wife playing the AIs, she's actually cast due to her involvement in John Hughes' movie, so best of both. I suppose. They wanted to do this to bring in an element that has not been seen in the films in that Peter talks to himself a lot in the comics. We get a lot of thought bubbles and it's hard to do things like that and it's an advantage of the medium that you can't really do in live action. So by giving him an AI, rather than just quipping at the villain or talking to one of his allies over a radio or something, by having it be an AI so it it doesn't feel like there's consequences to talking to them so he can just say whatever he's thinking it kind of simulates that and I, I do dig the vibe and you know she doesn't have tons and tons of lines but it lets you do that it lets him talk and then you get the funny stuff with like you know instant kill mode and this is your chance Peter kiss her she's really good I think obviously Paul Bettany kind of like stamped out his role and became actually recognizable in like the fact that people are excited to see him become a live action character rather than just a voice I think it's sad that Jennifer Connelly gets more to do than Kerry Condon in any of her roles so far. <laughs> who um, is in this movie? <laughs> she, who is in it? Yeah, Kerry Condon does get a voice Friday in this movie, but it's still one of those things where Jennifer Connelly basically gets like an extended bit of the movie where she like she is the only other character being voiced at that point and gets like an entire personality developed through that, which I mean is great. But it's it's sad that like the replacement of Tony's AI hasn't had anywhere near the amount of investment. Well, if in Robert it. Downey Jr. would just agree to do Iron Man Four, then we could just get this on with. But no, I don't. I'm not sure I want to see that anyway. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure <laughs> they just make it like Pepper's jealous of Friday or something mm, awful. Wonderful. I like that they develop this genuine like sort of friendship, and she's like, I would not think it was bad or whatever. Yeah, it, it's it's all just really good stuff. And like, you know, oh, how long have we been here? Thirty-seven minutes. Thirty-seven minutes. <laughs> And then at the Washington Monument, I like the little touches that he's scared of heights because we haven't seen him swinging from proper skyscrapers yet. So this is the highest he's ever been. And he's actually scared. And that's that's a nice way to go, like, to remind you, this is a kid. Who hasn't properly tested out his abilities yet. He knows he can stick to walls, but... Can he go completely, like, horizontal with his feet attached to the side of something? Yes, it turns out he can. I like the little drone. It's a bit gimmicky, and I... I wonder if they'll do something with it in future because it doesn't do a huge amount here, but you know, it's a fun, weird little thing. I think some people have complained about how much tech there is in it, but I think almost every single piece of tech shown in this film has been used by Spider-Man at some point in the comics. It's just it's all coming at once. So, And also, if it's built by Tony Stark, that makes sense. My favourite thing about this Washington Monument scene is when Michelle has chosen not to go inside 
and uh, their teacher Martin Starr asks why and she said she's not keen to check out something built by slaves and he's like I'm sure it wasn't and then looks over at the security guard who's just doing this little hand thing of like, mm. and then he just leaves her out of there I think that's wonderful again it's nice like all these scenes with the kids all together are really nice yeah. and obviously you get to see that like they actually have personalities they're trying to get everyone out of the lift that Peter's trying to like rescue people from and then Flash is just like pushing yeah me first me first take my trophy yeah and it's classic Spider-Man stuff like stopping this thing from falling like the upside down like they evoke that upside down kiss and he's hanging there in front of Liz and Karen says this is your chance Peter kiss her and then he just falls I like that they don't just completely throw out the legacy of of Spider-Man on film they use it to subvert and it's all very good Uh, so Peter follows a lead from his first encounter with this little crew finds the location of their next weapons deal which is on the Staten Island Ferry, manages to break it up, but during the chaos, because the FBI were there as well, the ferry almost sinks, like it splits in half, and uh, the the combined efforts of Peter and Iron Man, who shows up, stop it. And Tony is very angry and takes away his suit, which reminds me, I forgot to talk about something earlier, but we'll do it here. But first, Donald Glover is Aaron Davis, very clearly cast in response to the Donald for Spider-Man movement that was going around before Garfield got the gig. I love it. Like, he, he, of course, has also voiced Miles Morales in some cartoons, and here he is playing Aaron Davis. He mentions his nephew, which is, of course, Miles Morales. In the comics, this character is a villain, the Prowler. I don't know if they're going to do that. I, For me, this is probably a one-time appearance, but they have that avenue yeah, if they want it. It's crazy to think that in the time between this movie being released and now, Donald Glover has become more busy. It used to be, oh, good for him, he's got a role, and now it's like, how's he going to have time to do this thing I want him to do? Yeah, like, the the man has gone from being, oh, look, it's cool, he's playing Aaron Davis in Spider-Man, to now playing Lando Calrissian and Simba. With the second season of his award-winning show coming out. He's got one less project to keep him busy, though. Although he wasn't too busy. Anyway, I like him giving Peter shit about not being good at interrogating people and stuff like that. And, you know, you need to get better at this, which I'm sure he will. They deleted a post credit scene, which would have seen Aaron still stuck to the car hours later and calling Miles to say he was going to be late home. Is that, on the, is that on the Blu-ray? I don't know if it's available to view, I but need, it was... I need to was... find if this is a real thing that I can watch. Yes, 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 yes. I also like that Peter leaves him there. And he's like, you deserve it. You are a criminal. So <laughs> two hours... And he's got ice cream in the boot as well. The ferry scene is, of course, it's evocative of what Raimi was doing. There's always one of these scenes. Spider-Man struggling to save everyone from some massive mass death scenario. He's holding this ferry together with all his webbing. This scene also sets up Scorpion's arrest. He is the attempted buyer, I believe, in this, uh, very subtly. And the events of all of this convince Vulture to finally try and rob the plane. But more importantly, so Tony steps in, and I, I forgot to mention earlier, when Tony stepped in before, we get this reveal that he's not actually piloting the suit, and that he is just enjoying himself in a completely different country, and talking to him over the phone. So when he turns up here... Peter gives him shit and being like, you know, you couldn't even bother to show up. And he steps out of the suit and it's RDJ. And it's like, oh shit. And they use this voice effect that makes it sound like he isn't there as well. Just to really double down on that. Because in that first one, you can kind of tell, like, he sounds more distant than he usually does as Iron Man. And then you get that. And it's it's a lovely little 
sort of fake out and we get him doing some acting like dressing him down and applying what he learned from Iron Man 3 you know the whole thing of if you're nothing without the suit you shouldn't have it and stuff like that but yeah this is this is why they paid him money I think this is like the third thing he's done in this movie but it's also like I struggle to call it the emotional centerpiece but it is definitely a key point in Miles' arc which is him basically he needs to learn to be a hero and if he can only be a hero when he's got all these gadgets and doodads helping him then he doesn't deserve it it's kind of a twist on with great power comes great responsibility yeah i I also like the touch that he reveals that he has been hearing and seeing all these messages and voicemails despite completely ignoring them he is completely aware of everything that he's doing that is nice because they obviously come across as kind of dicks (laughs) for just completely ignoring this kid who just wants to help but we we do get that little reveal well happy happy definitely just comes up as a dick because of it because yeah but then he does it as well like he's he's like oh i thought you quit band well that is true but like he does have the bit with ned where he just hangs up on ned (laughs) well of course you hang up on ned but he initially accepts his fate he throws himself back into school he has no longer the spider-man for now Uh, he asks liz to homecoming she says yes when he shows up to take her who answers the motherfucking door but michael keaton the vulture and because of inherent racism none of us saw this twist coming it's not a twist it's a reveal Okay, the reveal, fine, that her father is the vulture. How is that? Better. Okay. So, of course, Peter is very on edge. And uh, during the the drive to this dance, uh, Michael Keaton deduces that Peter is Spider-Man as well. And, uh, you know, Liz is asked to step out of the car while they have the you know the dad talk and he warns peter to stay away and gives him the free pass and all that Uh, of course peter ignores him goes after him with the help of ned and the vulture initially lures him into a trap pinning him under rubble and leaving him for dead we will talk about the consequences of that the next thing but i just want to go over this stuff first i love this not twist (laughs) i love that there's no music playing during this you get this really uncomfortable silence and i love that he gives her the past because of liz and everything he says is about family like he's doing this for liz this is what he's willing to do to protect his family and all of that just makes him a far more realistic rounded character in one moment than most (laughs) comic book villains and it's what i said at the beginning in that like he doesn't have significantly more screen time but just little things like this just make him way more effective and then we will then see him when when peter catches up to him and and he's like you know oh selling weapons that's really honorable it's like how do you think tony stark paid for that tower he lives in and it's like yeah fucking nailed him as well didn't you this is the scene where michael keaton like earns his paycheck he's been good in every other scene in this movie yeah. Michael Keaton is so good in this scene yeah. just the way his face changes when he like figures it out yeah. and like you get the little hints that he's like beginning to with the whole thing about like I recognise your voice why do I recognise your voice have we and I'm glad that that happens because how many fucking movies it's like you would know that it's him just the yeah, moment he talks like he doesn't have a distinct voice because he tries to put on a bit of a voice when he rescues all of the kids in the Washington Monument but I guess he hadn't considered doing that for complete strangers because he didn't think anyone would recognise yeah because this movie's so low stakes comparatively like nothing in this movie results in the end of the world or anything like that this is just a thief trying to steal things so he can make money for his family we're at the point where the hero meets the villain and the hero doesn't immediately have to go punch the villain in the face because the villain's trying to murder people there's not that tension there like there is the actual push and pull of Peter doesn't want people to know that he's Spider-Man, so he's not going to immediately take out the guy that he knows the villain. They're so in this little stalemate, because obviously also Tombs isn't going to like assault this kid in front of his daughter <laughs> or in front yeah. of anyone. Because <laughs> again, like, this, isn't, this isn't life or death stakes. Like, this is just yeah. Peter wants to take out a criminal, 
who he has reason to believe, I think, has like killed people, but I don't, I don't think he's seen anyone actually be murdered or anything by what Tombs has been doing, or anything no. that has happened that's resulted in deaths has been an accident. This isn't the Guardians meeting Rodan. The idea is, like, we're going to fire a fuck-off missile at his chest, because the moment you see him, we have to kill him. This is two people who are at opposite ends of a moral spectrum, but in no way does the fate of the universe rest on Peter's shoulders if he takes out the vulture couple of tiny little beats here that I also like but aren't worth several minutes of conversation or anything. Michelle swears at Peter when she sees him at prom, like just gives him the middle finger. It's uh, another nice little realistic thing that people do. I like that Flash takes Betty to prom. Uh, those two characters end up married in the comics. It's very subtle but I like that it's there. I like that Ned gets to be the man in the chair finally in the computer lab and he's got three computers so he can look up like this car that Peter's stolen well yes porn he can look up like the the car's manual he can track he can do the you know I, I I just like all of that stuff. I like that he doesn't have to roll back and forward between the two screens. Yes. But why doesn't he just turn on the third screen? I don't know. On the right? Like, why does he do it behind him? It's not quicker. He didn't think about it. He just did what he did and he committed just to move, it. Just move another chair up the way and just roll left and right. Again, not as interesting cinematically, but... Yes, and we're going to skip right over where he takes down the second shocker because there is not time. So, Peter, trapped under this rubble, of course summons up the strength to free himself. He gives chase. He stops the vulture from robbing... A Tony Stark's plane full of, of tech is being moved to the new Avengers facility. It crashes into a closed amusement park. They continue fighting. Peter tries to warn the Vulture that his little uh, flight suit is malfunctioning. Fails. It explodes, kind of. But he does carry him from the burning wreckage and leaves him for the authorities to find. So Kevin Feige, of course, pushed for this scene. It is a recreation of issue 33 of Amazing Spider-Man. The iconic Spider-Man moment. One of the most important moments in all of comic books, arguably. The inner monologue as, as he tries to summon the strength to lift this impossibly heavy object off himself i love the execution of this and i love that kevin feige fought for it i love how scared he is and how he just immediately is a child again he can't lift it so he panics he's afraid he is trapped he's calling out for someone you buy how terrified he is and then the response to that is to say come on spider-man when he sees the reflection in the in the water of his mask and stuff and that's the entire point in the identity the reason he calls himself Spider-Man and not Spider-Boy despite being a kid is because he projects this character of Spider-Man and he plays that identity to give himself the confidence and the courage to confront danger and to be quippy and confident when he maybe isn't very smooth in his day-to-day -day life and stuff like that. And I, I think it's such a powerful scene executed brilliantly. It's interesting they've done it here because it's such, a, it's such an iconic moment but it's definitely not tied to the vulture. I think it's Dr. Octopus is the cause of it. Like, it's a combination of, like, Dr. Octopus and the Lizard or, or Kurt Connors and stuff like that are around at this one. And so doing it now, obviously, it's a statement of intent to do it in this movie, to be like, we're doing this iconic scene now, we're placing this pivotal moment in Spider-Man's history in part of this movie. I do think it raises the stakes an awful lot, if, if you were aware of, like, what they're going for. Yeah. And it's so perfectly executed. If you read this comic book, then this is what you wanted to see adapted to a screen and you've got it here 100%. Even if the cause of it is different, it's still the yeah. same monologue, the same kind of like build-up and stuff yeah, to yeah, it. Yeah. That kind of scene has been mimicked and copied and homaged ad nauseum. Like this this is a defining sort of trope of comic books. and He will never get, get past this obstacle, but he must summon up the inner fortitude and he will do it. Yeah. So the other thing I wanted to ask you is, where did they crash land, Matt? 
I don't know. It's Coney Island. It's Coney Island. Okay, my bad. I will edit that in. I will edit myself being correct in and erase this moment from history. Just you watch me. I won't. I will let. I don't, listen. Wrong. I don't listen to the podcast after I've done it. I very much told myself you. I like that he tries to save him at the end there. Like it's all funny games that we're fighting. I don't actually want you to die though. And he's like, yeah, oh, you'll see, you'll see. I don't think the final fight is the best part of this. I think all the good stuff in terms of like their interactions have happened already, and I do yeah. like the final beat of him trying to save him. But the act. Okay, I don't think it's meant to be a final fight as much as it's just this is where the conclusion of that story happens sure i mean that's a complaint that we've got against all these movies it's that mm-hmm. the final confrontation is not the most interesting resolution to all the stuff coming beforehand but i still appreciate they still do play on the the dynamic between the two characters and it's still mm-hmm. very much like peter doesn't want to see him die because he does like liz and doesn't want to see her grow up without a dad and we'll, uh, s- we'll we see the consequences of that next so with with vulture arrested liz she leaves the school because he doesn't want his family in New York during the trial. Happy Hogan. Thanks, Peter, for for the help with this, because he probably would have lost his job if this plane went missing. He takes him to the new Avengers HQ, where Tony offers him a new suit, another new suit, and a spot on the team with a press conference and everything. Peter, who initially all he wanted in the world was to be an Avenger, and now he says politely no. He wants to continue being a friendly neighbourhood Spider-Man. So Tony instead proposes to Pepper at this press conference. I do like that Peter turns around and goes, like, this is a test, right? Like, this, yeah. this wasn't serious or anything like that. And then Tony's like, yep, nope, 100%. This is this is a test you passed. And, <laughs> and then, then Pepper's immediately like, did you guys screw this up? Yeah, Gwyneth Paltrow's back as Pepper Potts. Um, I did not realise this was a fan theory, but there apparently was a fan theory that Pepper died in the surgery that removed the extremis from her, and Tony had been in denial ever since, and that's why he turned into a massive dickbag. What? The, I know, I offer the counter-argument he has always been a massive dickbag. Killing off Gwen, Gwyneth Paltrow off-screen is definitely not something these movies would do. No. Yeah, she's alive, she's back. It's nice to see her back, and that their relationship is fixed. Obviously, whatever whatever happened in Civil War was not as serious as we were led to believe, because this is, what, a couple weeks later? There's the, what, six months, is it? Or yeah, I think it's meant to be a few months after, yeah. Uh, either way, it, it's a fun little scene, like, Happy's been hang, uh, carrying the ring around uh, since 2008, which is when Iron Man 1 came out, I think. Who knows, this this movie fucked the timeline up so badly. <laughs> yeah, uh, this also confirms there are Avengers. Like, we, we ended our Civil War podcast saying there isn't an Avengers team. There is, and they have a brand new shiny compound, and Peter has offered what? a room in it, and the Vision will be in the, the room next door that's that the only other Avenger yep it's Tony it's Peter and it's Vision who knows we will see I would um, watch that movie sure Happy hanging out in a high school bathroom is not a good look for him at all <laughs> texting a student to come meet him in the bathroom and then says he's been there a while as well we also get you know, that reveal that, that Michelle is MJ and I like that Peter doesn't get away with standing Liz up at the dance he goes over to her and he, he says you know sorry and anything I could do and all this and he says sorry and she says you know you're always saying that which you know specifically which one and it's not that he ends the movie like in the doghouse or anything like she ultimately is like you know just whatever's going on with you I hope you figure it out but I like that there's no kiss I like that there's no like big redemption for him romantically here that he bailed on her and she has not forgotten that and I I like that that is a beat yeah again like this movie nails the dynamics between them I mean the comic books of Spider-Man are pretty much a soap opera like like, there's so much relationship stuff in those comic books yes he's a superhero but it's very much the balancing of a job or school and your love life and your superheroic life and how 
the love life and the work life are almost like entirely the ones that get put by the wayside because he is such a so into being a superhero and this movie just completely nails it is that every single time that he plans to do something he just completely forgets about it because he's he wants to save other people so much that he's he puts his friends and girlfriends and family to the side quite often to his own detriment to his own happiness um his his own happiness is detriment but it's what makes him such like a good iconic hero and this true hero unsung hero yeah and then the movie ends with aunt may discovering his secret and and an, an almost swear which... Almost our first F word in a Marvel movie. Yeah. In the mid credit scene, Vulture is approached by Matt Gargan, aka the Scorpion, who was the attempted buyer in that very scene. And he has heard a rumour that Adrian Toomes knows Spider Man's identity. And he wants to know. Vulture doesn't give it to him, which is somewhat surprising, and we'll discuss the ramifications in a moment. And then our final scene is Captain America is in this movie, <laughs> doing cringy PSAs that are a, a tribute to old presidential PSAs that got shown in schools, and very funny one earlier on. Hannibal Barres is the gym teacher, is like, pretty sure that guy's a war criminal now, but never mind. And We get one at the end here, with him talking about how patience is a virtue, and sometimes you feel like you did it for nothing, and a nice little tongue-in-cheek thing about these Marvel end credit scenes. These scenes almost make up for the fact that he's wearing the god-awful Avengers costume. But that makes it better in some ways because <laughs> it's the worst. He doesn't look cool. He looks his dorkiest. And I like that he's like pointing to the gym teacher who's standing on the opposite side of the television and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it's all just really good shit low-level stuff where you remember that Cap is the squarest square in all of Squaresville. So May finding out that's pretty uncharted territory in these movies it's always the eternal she can never know type thing and we set this up for the next time where she will know and hopefully that will give her a lot more to do because she can properly parent him and know about every aspect of his life i hope that that leads to good things i know some people were pretty angry about this but i'm into it i'm up for it she's not in infinity war is she no i know ned's in it but i'm just wondering whether or not we're gonna get any part of i think most of the kids are in it uh maybe not zendaya but I, i think several of the incidental kids are in it i mean this is the first movie we've had that really ends on like a proper cliffhanger in a while that we haven't seen resolved um in a movie since like doctor strange does end with the oh loki like where's loki blah 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 but we got that result we get that resolved in thor ragnarok thor ragnarok obviously ends with a giant spaceship but we know we're going to get that resolved in infinity war and now this movie may finds out but we're not going to get anything really we might get like a line of dialogue or something like that about like oh i've been in the doghouse with may ever since she found out well the next film is going to be set a year later so we're not going to see the initial conversation we're just going to see the new dynamic and i think that can be fun should be it is something that i'm interested to see and i do hope that like because they have announced that spider-man homecoming 2 is going to feature a different marvel hero to iron man in a similar role but i do hope that they don't have it be a parental figure and instead it's someone who's kind of teaching him to be a superhero whilst may gets to be a, a maternal figure hawkeye 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 please live michael mando uh is or mondo but spelled funny maybe is scorpion is matt guy as this is yet more of our sort of sinister six teasing he is a character who historically has gone after the family members of of people he's trying to get to just this general interaction with the vulture it's been read several ways i i think to me there's only one but some people have suggested 
Vulture doesn't give up the identity because he wants to be the one to go after Peter. I think it's far more likely that he spared Peter the first time because he saved Liz, so maybe he's sparing him this time because he saved him. And he doesn't want a kid to die, fundamentally. While he's not got a problem with killing him if he interferes with him, I don't think he's overly enthused at the idea of someone else going out hunting him down and murdering him. So you can choose your own interpretation, but either way, I think it's an interesting little scene. Yeah, I think it is too. Alcamander, they're probably most well-known for playing Vars in Far Cry 3. He's fun, it's nice to see him get to do something else. He's also very good in Better Call Saul, but like as a villainous role, he's probably best known for being the crazy villain in Far Cry 3. So yes. maybe they'll go for something like that in Spider-Man. Who knows? Who knows? So some miscellaneous stuff here. There's a lot more than usual. Some of the objects in damage control slash the plane of the Ultron bot head. We have Thor's belt Negingjord, which Happy can't pronounce and neither can I. We have the Mark 42 armor for Iron Man 3. We have a bunch of Chitari tech, just tons of stuff. And I'm sure some people were hoping for even more, but we have some stuff there. The plane going invisible with the retro reflective panels. That was a suggestion of small boy Harley Keener from Iron Man 3 that Tony dismissed, but here he is using it. So the spirit of Harley is alive. Spider-Man never throws one single punch in this movie. Blitzkrieg Bop by the Ramones is used twice. They, of course, famously covered the Spider-Man theme tune on one of their albums, and they are also from Queens. We got Andrew Garfield wearing a Ramones t-shirt or having a Ramones poster or something like that in his outing, but lots of cameos. We have Tyne Daly as the head of Damage Control or the representative Hemke Madeira as Mr. Delmar. Hannibal Barras, as I said, is a gym coach. That's a fun little role. As I said, Chris Evans as Captain America. Martin Starr as Mr. Harrington. Potentially the same character as Incredible Hulk, if they even give a shit, because it's Incredible Hulk. The little girl from Nice Guys. Oh, Angry's Rice. Sure, whatever. Andrew's Rice. She plays Betty Brandt, who is... She goes to prom with Flash, and she's on the TV in the sort of, like, school TV club thing. Tiffany as Spenson plays Cindy Moon, which is the name of the character Silk. She is in the Academic Decathlon team. I highly doubt she's going to end up being Silk, but, you know, nice little... That would be very awkward if she did. What happens when Cindy Moon and Peter Parker are in the same room together? They can't stop banging. They were bitten by the same spider. It's a whole thing. Stan Lee plays a random man in Queens shouting, don't make me come down there. Probably one of the more appropriate cameos he does. Kerry Gondon, as I said, is back as Friday. Garcelle Beavis is Doris Toombs. I've, I've written and deleted the names of several other teachers. There's so many people in this movie. Kenneth Choi is Principal Marita. Interesting here because he, of course, played one of the Howling Commandos in Captain America 1. He has a picture of that character in his office and the sort of connect the dots explanation is he is playing the grandson of his own character which is very nice it also potentially explains why his school are still showing these captain america videos despite as hannibal breast says this guy is a war criminal now also in this school are pictures of howard stark abraham erskine and bruce banner at various points that i have not noticed but take the word of the internet experts that they are there. Jane Levy and Kaya Scudelario, the chick from Skins. They were considered to play Peter's love interest. I have to assume that this was Michelle, not Liz. I mean, Jane Levy's famously a redhead, so you know, MJ. The iconic poster used for this episode, as well as just the general poster, uh, with Spider-Man wearing the yellow blazer lying on his back. That is a picture that a member of the crew took of Tom Holland sleeping in between takes. This is the MCU movie with the most Oscar winners in it, with three. 
Gwyneth Paltrow, Marissa Tomei, Jennifer Connelly. Lots of nominees in a lot of these films, obviously, but this is the most winners. Tom Holland asked Kim Feige's permission to make the fan theory that the little kid in Iron Man 2 wearing the Iron Man mask was a young Peter after he heard that fan theory. And Kim Feige went, yes. So Tom Holland revealed that's canon. Sokovia records are mentioned in the history class. Oh, yeah, the history class, they happened like two months ago. Like, what class is that? I'm pretty talk? sure that's a pr- that would be considered a large moment in history, whether it was... I mean, like, I'm just, I'm just, like, surely like, that's politics class, if that's... Maybe it's thing. politics. Could you imagine being sat there in a history class and then someone says, like, well, Brexit happened yesterday. <laughs> Donald Trump is president now. <laughs> <laughs> the Triskelion is seen on some road signs and mentioned out loud. Then, like, some stuff for the future of this homecoming verse the idea is for each sequel to cover another school year vincent d'onofrio wants to play the kingpin uh let him matthew mcconaughey <laughs> has expressed interest in playing the green goblin let him killian uh, murphy wants to play a villain let him and alfred molina has expressed interest in returning as dr octopus don't let him Matt damon has recently turned down a role in Batman homecoming 2 as well i saw someone put out a rumor that it was alistair smide that was yesterday which was april fool's day take that with a pinch of salt Indeed. Fuck everyone that does that because some of these things are real and you never know what is and isn't. The thing is, like, we're getting increasing to the point where people are putting out things and basically being like, oh, this person dropped out of this movie. And it's like, is that an April Fool's Day joke? Or is that like, <laughs> you, you've not even done like this person's been cast, you've done this person was considered and then dropped out. And they're just like, that yeah. could not be a joke. <laughs> yep, exactly. Didn't really find a slot to put this in anywhere, but just generally, I love the movement that comes with this take on Spider Man. Tom Holland is performing most of these stunts himself. He has, of course, got the gymnastic background. And the movement feels far more authentic. It feels more parkour-y and less sort of hyper-exaggerated video game physics jumping around. You may have seen that video of him on the lip-sync battle. Yes, have I ever. My God, am I sexually (laughs) confused. Particularly one that stood out for me is when he jumps into the burning deli. Just the leap. It just, I don't know, just stuff like that. I, I love the general, he feels more real. Is, is yes. what I will say. Uh, the way I also love the eyes. Of course, because they have the adaptive lenses, which explains his uh, reality-defying eyes from the comic books, which change size to convey emotion. And also freaks out small children. Apologies, that was a ton of stuff. So let's get into our final segments. So Villain Watch, I think we have a strong contender for Loki's crown of best villain. I don't think he is the best villain, but... yeah. After this a is, long is... spate of not-so-good, this is one of the best ones. Yeah, this is the best villain since Loki in Avengers. I don't think there's any contest for like a better villain than this, and Michael Keaton is so damn good. Again, as you said, he doesn't have a, doesn't have a lot to do, but when he's on screen, he's just a magnetic yeah. presence who they've actually built up to be a sympathetic villain who, even if you don't want them to achieve their goals, you still sympathise with them. Yeah. Um, that scene in the car is so damn good probably the best well, it was the best up until black panther villain solo moment i would i would reckon i think loki is better overall but i think that one scene with keaton in the car like him figuring it out and then confronting peter it is probably the best single scene of villain acting in any of these movies yeah for sure the third act i think there's no drop off whatsoever for the general pace i think this movie is pretty consistent throughout i personally don't think there are any sort of lengthy periods that feel boring or unnecessary or that bog it down. I definitely found in this movie that that the first act 
drowned for me a little bit okay. um, when rewatching. Just just in terms of, like, I really liked the first thing with Michael Keaton, and then it kind of went from Peter doing the home video to Peter going to um, out on patrol and stuff like that. And I guess I I didn't feel it settled into its rhythms until it went to high school. And like once it was in high school properly, properly and doing like stuff there, I yeah. was like all in again. But it just took took me a little bit yeah. longer this time to get fully into the pace of the movie. I feel um, they I kind of had to pay their service to that kind of thing. But as I said, the, the backbone of this movie and their hopes of this being a continually good French sub franchise with those kids are with this high school vibe they've built. Uh, they've got a nice faculty, and I'm sure they will cast even more fun people to to play teachers going forward. So, outstanding performances. We have three spare, I believe, heading into this because we have Robert Downey Jr., Sam Rockwell, Haley Atwell, Tom Hiddleston, Matt Ruffalo, Scarlett Johansson, Ben Kingsley, Chris Evans, Samuel L. Jackson, the entire Guardians of the Galaxy team, Michael Pena, and Michael Rooker so far. For me, Tom Holland has to get something just because of how utterly he nails both Spider-Man and Peter Parker. In some ways, it's understated. I just think it's so incredibly solid for a guy that young to be able to be the star of this movie. Because, I mean, Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield both had some name value before they were cast. And obviously it boosted it. But Tom Holland is obviously... It's not like he's been in nothing, but... It's a pretty big role to take on at his age, and I think he doesn't at all get lost in it, and I think he plays every part of this well. Yeah, I mean, like, what, he came off... He was Billy Elliot in the musical in the West End. He had The Impossible in The Heart of the Sea and Wolf Hall, and then he's this. For someone to settle into a role as a lead in one of these movies as quickly as he has is, like, pretty astounding. And for someone to be as perfectly suited to this character, especially when you think about him doing the accent, like, he is British, he is doing this accent, which I'm not saying that it's hard to do an American accent, but I'm saying that there are some actors who cannot do an accent and act well at the same time, mm. and he is doing that with spades. I think his accent's better than Benedict Cumberbatch's, or at least his manner of speech is more authentic. And the daunting task of going up against a large portion of people like that Tobey Maguire performance. I know I'm in the minority that that don't love it. I kind of liked what Andrew Garfield was doing, but, you know, to be the third Spider-Man in just over a decade was a big task, and I think he leapt that hurdle. He did a backflip over the hurdle, for realsies, with no stuntman. Because he's doing that thing that we've not really seen properly before, which is high school Peter and completely nailing it like he's also the first one to i feel properly nail both parts yeah which is the important part is he is spider-man and he is peter parker he doesn't excel at one or the other he is capable of doing both i believe him i think that's the biggest thing i can say is that i, I fully believe him as this iconic character yeah um, no 100 i would also say that we should use one of our three spares on michael keaton as as adrian tombs 100%. I, again, like you don't, we don't get to this point where we've given people like Ben Kingsley and Sam Rockwell best performance features for their villain roles, and then not give it to Keaton. Who, like, we've given Loki two so far. <laughs> Michael Keaton has only been in one movie, but he is completely blown. Pretty yeah. much every villain in the past. I mean, what Avengers was the sixth movie in this franchise. Yeah. So in ten movies' time, we haven't had anyone in comparison to this. So yeah, yeah, this needs it. Like Tom Tom Holland for completely redefining this character. 
in a tricky ability or like in the fact that he's the third one that is tarred but michael keaton gets to come in and take like what is probably a c-list villain and then <laughs> make him compelling and interesting and i want more of him and i i don't want him to get in the way of another villain but like an issue with spider-man movies is they they stack and stack and stack and stack the villains and sometimes it feels like you've got too much going on this is the first movie where it felt like all the villains got the right amount of stuff to do and they actually managed to keep so much meat for Michael Keaton to chew on even whilst yeah. realising that this is Tom Holland's movie to do what he wants with. This isn't a two-hander in the same way that something like Civil War is, but this movie is not as good if Tom Holland or Michael Keaton aren't in it. The best thing you can say about what these performances awards are supposed to be is they're supposed to be people who, if you remove the characters, completely change the DNA of the movie that they're in. Yeah. Special shout-out, but not actual nomination to Zendaya, I think, just because of what a dramatic turnaround from what she's known for the look of it as well of that character i think is great and i think she's setting herself up to be quite a star and i look forward to what she does next time but i will not be saying let's give her a nominee i think your point stands about that character and that leaves us with two spare heading forward our next episode will be on thor ragnarok i think it's very clear who's gonna get that one and then it will be black panther we also have a crossover episode coming with the superhero pantheon another comic book movie podcast hosted by jerome kisson who is a friend of the real world so it'll be me ben jerome and uh, his co-host brian all on one we will be previewing infinity war you can check that out coming soon go to enter the real world.com to ease real world check all that out this has been fun i think again apologies for my gushing about spider-man but i'm just elated that i finally got the spider-man movie that i think we all deserve this has maybe gone from being what was going to be 20 minutes of my thoughts to being potentially our longest episode ever yeah and most of it mine instead of yours sorry <laughs> it's fine You're, you are the spider-man like when we do our marvel rankings at the end of this i mean we've already compared our draft lists before we watched Thor ragnarok and you have got spider-man homecoming quite a few spaces above like, me on that list yeah i feel i haven't actually let you say why you don't think it is that high really <laughs> um no I, I i just i just think it's it's a good fun movie that i think has i don't think it's harmed by having less mistakes but i do think it's one of those ones where i put it firmly in the similar level to like iron man and captain america where it's a really solid first outing for a character that doesn't need to trans anything and doesn't transcend anything like yeah this is an eight out of ten movie that fixes what's been wrong with the last three spider-man movies and makes it all better and incorporates it into a universe and builds a lot of stuff and i can't wait to see where the second movie in this franchise goes because i think it's going to be even better than this one I think that's been a common theme of a lot of the ones recently where even if something is imperfect, I think they've been setting up a lot of very good foundations lately with Ant-Man, with Doctor Strange, with this. They are future-proofing themselves for if they start killing off some of these OG characters in Infinity War. We'll see what happens there. But this has been Spider-Man. This might be one of our longest episodes. My bad. Everyone blame me and my Spider-Man crush. So yeah, next time, one of my other crushes, Chris Hemsworth returns as Thor in Thor Ragnarok. I'm excited to do that one. Again, haven't seen that since I saw it in the cinema, so happy. Me either. Thank you. Well, we're off to watch Thor Ragnarok. (laughs) That's not true. But see you next time. Bye, everyone. Yes. Hey! Oh!